Oh man. Oh man, let's go. I said no one. I said no one. I said no one. Oh man, welcome back to NMMU, the podcast, No More Money University. Damn, what a song. Okay, another weekly, this is episode 34, thank you for joining me. Uh, I just want to start, today's episode is titled, Your Strategy Showing. <laughs> why your strategy showing? So, I guess why I do this podcast or why I make anything creative is just down to me being able to notice something in the world and then me being able to rebuild it like I, or make my own version rather. And that has to do with different things. It's two sides of me, the emotional side and the more logical side. And it's about tapping into both of those and making sure that both of those are sort of watered, right? I'm looking at my cactus plant here right now. I should give her a name. She's growing so beautifully. Anyway, um, back to your strategy showing. So this week is about, for me, news is something that I really stay close to. There's no day that passes without me listening, reading, watching news about anything, everything. I watched, I watched a really great WWE documentary thing on Stone Cold, but that's to the side. Uh, your strategy is showing again because this is the way I build strategy. Here's my little secret. I look at the world in terms of news, almost the way a financial sort of analyst would, different indicators except my stock exchange is on ideas, right? So everything impacts a good idea and when an idea is, an, is experienced. That's why, you know, if Kendrick puts out an album about, you know, being more real, for example, in a time when people are being real fake, it's great creative meeting, great timing, which makes it iconic, right? For example, so... That's how I write strategy. That's how I create work. I look at things around the world and you can hear the hardy does. <laughs> I look at things around the world and how the world is reacting to things and then I create communications out of them or rather source the feeling, if you like. Um, yeah. I also wanted to open by chatting about Wordle. So I've been playing Wordle. I use Brave so I couldn't... It wasn't saving my streak, so I went back to Safari, something on my iPhone, started playing. I lost my first game the other day. I think the word was frack. I was so annoyed. Um, but yeah, I carried on. That's one of the things that I do that keeps me sharp. I know Wordle seems like such a silly thing, but that's a tool that kind of gets me to notice other things. I play a game called Monuments Valley. It's a strategy game. You... You basically move a character through different puzzles, referenced by MC Escher. A friend of mine went to Portugal recently. Shout out La Rolls. And he went to those um those pink and blue buildings that are referenced that are referenced in the MC Escher work. Um Yeah, so it's just about those different things. Getting emails, nice. Um, it's just about those different things and you know how they apply. And, you know, sort of lead to me making work. And you'll see. So in this week, there's a clip from The Old Man, a show I'm watching on FX, probably my two favorite shows right now from FX, uh, The Old Man and The Bear. That's with the guy that used to play Lip from Shameless. The cast is really good, actually. 
which are in the old man, just a great clip about how to use your skills, emotional and logical. Um, second, I mishmashed stories between, well, the stories are um, from The Guardian and from The New York Times, and it's about changing temperatures, which is an interesting take on that, and just Europe going through heat waves and everyone just kind of being like, what the hell? Um, NASA, you know, we saw some pictures from the James Webb Telescope. And just the deeper dive, I just thought the meme stuff was not was not enough. I thought, hi, everyone, but, like, does this really matter? And when you listen, you find out it does. Adverts on Netflix, crazy. We knew this day would come. All advertising people, wherever you are, link up because it's time. Adverts will, will have substance again. Watch. And then fake Basquiat's. A case of fake Basquiat's found, you know, at a in a storage and then exhibited. But the story behind it and the guy who actually, you know, in the end started creating counterfeits and was a close friend, not a close friend, but knew Basquiat's and his parents. And apparently accused his dad, actually, of also creating fake Basquiat's. But listen to the entire piece. It's really good. And then Biden beat meets, rather... Biden beats. Uh, Biden meets Mohammed bin Salman at fist bump and what all of that means. And just, you know, behind the scenes in terms of um, Saudi Arabia and all the, the rumblings. It's a really great show today, show. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining as always. We stay running it up. You know, enjoy. Also, I'm getting so much better at this, by the way. And that's important. Let me say that before I go. You know, you keep going. You keep doing something and you just naturally get better. For me, this is also a way to, you know, just archive all my thoughts over time. Imagine I'm, I'm quite stimulated as a person in terms of information. So it's always good for me to, like, dump the information somewhere. New dump on my page. <laughs> So, yeah, this is good for me, and it clears my, my mind and creates more bandwidth for more, more creations. Enjoy. I want to understand how your world works. Will you explain it to me? Lesson number one, all trade craft, it's a way of wielding two weapons in concert. In your left hand, now as your empathy, your ability to read people, on what they want, what they need, what they fear, what uh, may give them hope, cause them shame. And then uh, in your other hand, you've got your ruthlessness, your willingness to use all that inside against them. And when those two knives are sharp, you'd be amazed what they can cut through. And that's something you're taught? Mm -hmm. Well, a little bit, but I learned by doing most of it. 
Emotionally carving strangers to pieces through trial and error sounds messy. Ah, you have no idea. Don't I? Oh, do you? The day we met? Mm-hmm. When you cooked for me, told me stories, and were charming. That's what you were doing, wasn't it? Disassembling me to see how I worked. Applying pressure to the seams so that I'd let you stay. Was it difficult? Was I difficult to disassemble and manipulate? It's not really a hard or easy kind of thing. Everyone's, you know, wired. It's really a simple wired. question. Yeah, not very hard. Really? Yeah. Okay. I really want to know how to do this. You haven't, uh, heard the catch yet, though. Huh? It's the catch. Oh, the catch. Is that once you turn it on, you can't turn it off. Ever. Every time you meet someone, you get close to someone, you lay eyes on them, you'll be thinking how easy it would be to use them, you know, hurt them, discard them. And maybe you wonder if you know, maybe they're doing it to you too. But maybe you can never really trust anyone ever again. Still want me to go on? Well, friend, I haven't really trusted anyone for a very long time. So. Why the fuck would I want to start now? Yo. <laughs> if that clip doesn't get you, I don't know what will, cuz. So that's from The Old Man. Really good show. I think I'm on episode six right now. It's a mini-series, obviously, never to be repeated. It will not be a season two. Jeff Bridges is doing the Lord's work. The lady that plays his daughter. I love her freckles speak about something so surface um but this clip for me is about the skills that are required to be i think good at anything i think they put it like i said in the context of espionage and you know taking advantage of people but i think you know if there's something that i remember from my working days my very short stint in the working world um being able to understand people and the information was the power you know, it wasn't just about, you know, a lot of people maybe look at it like, oh, are you charismatic? Are you a people's person? I think like all those are things that you have to work on. You know, I always say being nice is very hard. You have to practice being nice. You know, I think the people that are out there that are naturally whatever you describe as nice, I think they're, you know, there's a, there's a well that they obviously are drawing from that keeps them so sane or so open, vulnerable, helpful, etc. So, you know, this skill of being able to be aware of people's emotions, but also be aware of the objective, you know, will serve you very well. But like he says, I do agree. I think once you learn how to better, you know, sort of direct your em empathetic powers, if you like, 
you never know how to move away from that because everything is like work. Now they say separate work and, and home life. It's hard, especially when, you know, you you work in something or an industry that really defines you as a person, let's say, for example. So really good clip. Um, I think you should watch The Old Man. And I just also <laughs> have an obsession with old people. You know, I'm not a person who you know, scared of aging or what is coming. I like to look at old people actually and it, it helps me appreciate the days because, you know, if anything, health is wealth, youth is something you only have once and, you know, make as many memories as possible because, at, you know, at some point everything slows down, you know. So I even live in an area where I'm reminded of that when I go to like the grocery store. Um, but yeah, a really, really good just lesson, you know. I'm always trying to bring work lessons in here as well because I guess I'm looking for that from my, you know, um, how do you describe them? Um, mentors, people that don't even know me, um, but I'm sort of following, you know, their roadmap just as far as how they approach things that I also find myself, you know, encountering. Um yeah, the old man, your strategy showing. Isn't that a great start? It's really cool because that's what the, your strategy part is, a, is about. It's like, how do you start to read <laughs> in plain sight? You know. Um, yeah, but let's run it up. We're still here. It's the weekly. Next. Just to start, can you describe exactly what is happening right now in Europe? Yeah, people in Europe and the United Kingdom are living in the climate future now. London is set to be one of, if not the hottest spot on the planet today. Temperatures were forecast to hit 104 Fahrenheit for the first time. That's not just above normal, that is 30 degrees above normal. Extremely hot, unbearably hot to be honest. So parts of England are hitting nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit or peaking over 37 degrees Celsius. That's not normal, but it is, you know, normal now. Most homes are not built for this kind of heat anywhere in Europe. In fact, most homes don't even have air conditioning. Either do most schools. Some have canceled classes. It's way too hot to go outside. Even if you go in the shade, it's, it would still be too hot. I was in London a couple of weeks ago, and I walked across this bridge called the Hammersmith Bridge, which is only open to pedestrians and cyclists right now because mm -hmm. it's an old bridge in need of repair. And today, I learned that the bridge was being wrapped in foil. Where chains on all four corners of the structure have been wrapped in what essentially looks like tin foil you'd find in the kitchen at home. That to prevent the structure from cracking in this heat. Uh, one small airport in London, a runway closed for a couple of hours today because the runway was literally melting and apparently a small section of it lifted. It's just very, very hot, isn't it? It's hard to get through everywhere, you know, in the tube, it's just absolutely um, sweltering everywhere. The railway lines have slowed down. One of them is going to close tomorrow because in extreme heat, 
some of the tracks start to buckle. The way I look at it is people pay good money to go abroad to get this sort of weather. We get two days of it over here and the whole country comes to a standstill. What does that say about us as a nation? What do you normally do when it gets hot in the UK? Maybe pop down to the park, break open a pack of ice lollies, play a bit of frisbee, or just go to the beach and bask in it. And so they come to a beach which is far from lonely now, to find a place in the sun, to stretch their legs and doze in a sweltering paradise where the office and the washing up have forgotten things and sandcastles come out just right. At the moment, I guess you're thinking differently because in some parts of the country today, it's set to get over 40 degrees Celsius. So hot that the government has put out a red warning. The extreme heat we're forecasting right now is absolutely unprecedented. We've seen when climate change has driven such unprecedented severe weather events all around the world. It's clear that the UK isn't built for this kind of heat. Our homes don't tend to be air conditioned. Our offices might be, but seeing as train tracks are buckling in this weather, lots of us can't even get to work. Our towns and cities don't have enough shade, and so we'll just have to struggle through it. Year on year, the temperatures are going to go up. And you can already see the devastating effects that the climate crisis is having across Europe and beyond. Wildfires is scorching parts of Europe with firefighters battling blazes in Portugal, Spain, France and Croatia. Authorities are linking an unusual heat wave to climate change. A mass hot, dry air blown in by Oh man, I mishmashed those two so well. Killed it. Okay, cool. So both stories on climate change really... Um, if you followed anything to do with COP, which is the conference of the parties, different countries around the world, it made an agreement that we wouldn't go up a degree or something like we couldn't go up one more degree. <laughs> and we've done that. I think we've gone 1.5. So I think all around the world, we're going to start to see extreme weather. And it's winter now. I think we got close to snow this year. Raining in winter is always a sign. I think in South Africa, it's like... It can be cold, but the sun still shines, you know. So winter's not as bad. I'm currently sitting here, sheepskin boots, and I have thermal socks. Shout out to Discam, just taking our money. Um, Discam is like a local, I don't know, pharmacy store slash everything else. You get gloves. I saw I saw the Hulk thermal socks. This is not an ad for Discam. Um. Also, all the years of Greta Thunberg warning, and you know the the th if you read or or listen to watch reports on anything to do with climate, it's bad. All the people that are sort of the experts in that space are saying we're screwed. Um, reminds me of that movie that that came out. Was it last year? Or was it earlier this year? With Leonardo DiCaprio, um, just about the end of the world and not listening to the scientists. I think we're there now. I'm obviously not speaking from a place of doom and gloom, but I'm I'm curious to see how summer will be on this side of the world because it's already blazing. You know, the, in the story from the Guardian, they speak about 
how the UK will adapt to extreme heat in the future. And there's this part where they, they discuss um, they discuss apartments and how they're built, basically, and how already apartments get hot. So imagine in a situation of extreme heat, no air conditioning, which South Africa is very similar to, actually, with the way all these apartments are built. I always tease tiles and granite um, countertops is like the build of every apartment building in South Africa. So really interesting story. I think just listening to how the first world is dealing and just how they're, you know, reporting on all of this, because I think in and amongst all the other news that we have to listen to and know about, you know, is, you know, nature and climate. And, you know, it seems like what we've always been used to is going to change significantly in terms of, I don't know, seasons, types of weather, extremities, etc. But yeah, stay safe out there. Please please listen to both of these stories. One's from the New York Times, one's from The Guardian. New York Times, one is titled, and I'll get it for you right quick. Broken Climate Pledges in Europe's Heat Wave. So, oh yeah, that too. Um, they just spoke about how, you know, at COP26, there were all kinds of promises that were made by different countries about how they would re- reduce or help reducing emissions. A part of England's agreement was to remove gas, you know, as a... So, well, I guess for London to be less reliant or or, the, 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 or Britain, the UK, whatever, to be less reliant on gas. And obviously that's not the case. And we're more reliant now or they're more reliant on sort of fossil fuels you know, I'm obviously shanking this, but the point here is whatever they agreed to do, they didn't do. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, great stories, both um, just looking into if we're staying on the theme of your strategy showing opportunity. Anyone out there looking for work or looking for what the next thing is, impact space, how do we reverse what we've done to the to the planet and those will be the people that will be um compensated the best for their efforts so i hope you're one of them um here's a strategy that's that's definitely definitely showing so ken there was big news in space this week can you tell us about these new pictures from nasa that were revealed Yeah, we finally got pictures back from the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the biggest, newest telescope that NASA has. So these first photographs from Webb were so amazing that on Monday... Six and a half months ago, a rocket launched from Earth carrying the world's newest, most powerful deep space telescope. President Biden had a special event to unveil the very first photograph. These images are going to remind the world that America can do big things. And one of the things they saw was a galaxy where it's so far away that the light took more than 13 billion years to get to us here on Earth. Light where stars were born and from where they die. The universe is 13.8 billion years. So, you know, it's going way back. Let's do it. Okay, we've got the whole world watching. Are you ready to put the first image up? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. And then Tuesday, 
NASA had a separate event to show four other photographs. Okay, Amber, so here it is. And Can you walk us They're just gorgeous. There was a, a amazing photograph of this stellar nursery. You could see all these ripples of gas where new stars are being born. You could see another picture of a dying star, another one of five galaxies are in this intricate gravitational wow. dance. <laughs> okay, so the first image is a deep field. And it's also a deep field with a So cluster. this is what they call a deep field, which is basically point a telescope at a relatively empty part of the sky and see what's out there. There are galaxies here in which you're seeing individual clusters of stars forming, popping up just like popcorn. It's amazing is that you realize that the universe, you just look in the sky, it looks like it's mostly empty. But once you look at it in these new wavelengths of light, you realize there's exciting structure. There's just a sharpness and a clarity we've never had. Colors. Kind of littered like jewels all over the back of the image are these faint red galaxies. Things going on that you never realize until you put a telescope in space to look at them. This is how the oxygen in our bodies was made in stars, in galaxies, and we're seeing that process get started. It is really kind of like wondrous. It really does obviously like remind you of our smallness. What was the scientific reaction to these images? The scientists kept on saying that they were speechless. One person said that she ugly cried when she saw the first data. Someone was joking that all the astronomers in the world have changed their background screens on their computers yesterday. <laughs> so these are basically the very first efforts, just pointing the telescope at the very first few targets and not even trying very hard yet. It's like taking your car for a quick spin, but you know it can do so much more. This is basically just scratching the surface of what we'll be able to do in the coming years. So tell us about the piece of technology that actually took these images. This James Webb telescope sounds like space's newest, hottest invention. That's exactly what it is. It's the successor to NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, which has been taking photographs of the universe for decades now. James Webb is bigger, so that means it can gather much more light and see dimmer objects much farther away mm -hmm. to almost the Big Bang. Mm. It's looking back to when the first stars and the first galaxies formed. And this is probably within a half billion years after the Big Bang, the, the very story of the universe. You know, I don't want to say the words time travel, but it feels the closest to time travel we have. Astronomy really is time travel because light takes time to reach us. The farther anything is, the longer it takes light to get to us. So when we look at the farthest things, we are looking back in time. Okay, Ken, so let's go back in time. Tell us how this telescope came to be and how it became this defining moment for NASA. Back in 1990, NASA launched the Hubble Space Telescope, which has produced these amazing pictures of the universe that almost everyone has seen. Yeah, Hubble, that's, <laughs> that's the name I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a resounding success now. But when it launched, it was a huge embarrassment for NASA. In what way? Well, once they started getting the first images back, all the images were blurry. And they started tweaking. Maybe they thought they'd need to adjust something. But no matter what they did, the images were still blurry. And after enough investigation, they've discovered that the mirror had been ground to the wrong shape. And it's only by a, a tiny little bit. The mirror is eight feet wide. 
and the edges were two microns. Okay, so I'll save you all of that jibber jabber. <laughs> um, really great story again. A view of the beginning of time. That that whole thing they just said about um, the light that we're seeing now. We're looking at the past. Oh man, that was like, I kind of gave me goosebumps. So the reason I wanted to even put this one here, this story specifically, is because when I saw these images come out, I, like everyone else, was kind of like, okay. And just getting, you know, the deep dive into why this is an important moment. And, you know, that analogy of you get a new car and you just take it for a test drive quick. That doesn't really tell or show of all the things the car can do. That's not the rigorous testing. So... I'm excited to see what images we get from this, what we learn. But it's good to know that the most important thing about those images were not just the memes that everyone made, which I thought was so clever. And I just, you know, still wanted to know. I think like NASA, much as it's not as what it used to be in the past, you know, it's, these days it's like you can get NASA shirts at H&M. <laughs> um I still think there's smart people that are invested in, you know, finding out more about the universe and, you know, even the point they made about, you know, just looking up into the stars or into the sky at night and just seeing a few stars. That's not even, you know, a speckle of what's going on out there. And I think the smartest and the best of us will get us to these other galaxies or these other spaces. Um don't know if I'll be alive for all of that, but here's to wishing. What does he start to do after he becomes the anointed, one who's really going to run the show? So Mohammed bin Salman makes it very clear that he has an incredibly dramatic vision for the future of the kingdom. And that is not an overstatement. He's somebody that has this maximalist view of Saudi Arabia, and he wants to put it into motion and just make the kingdom a very different place than it used to be. Can you describe for us how did it used to be? You've spent lots of time in Saudi Arabia. Explain to us what it was like. Well, during my early trips to Saudi Arabia, which started in 2013, it was a place that was very much ruled according to this incredibly austere version of Islam that put big restrictions on the society. I mean, you could go to the mall and mannequins wouldn't have heads because under this version of Islam, they thought that it was wrong to have creations that were too close to the human body. Huh. You would be driving in a taxi and you would see a billboard for some brand of milk or yogurt or cereal or something like that, and you would have a happy family sort of gathered around a dining table, and all the female figures would be pixelated because they didn't want anybody to see the women. Huh. And, of course, there was the women driving ban, which, you know, was one of the best-known things about Saudi Arabia, was that for many decades, women were just completely banned from getting in a car and driving around. So that's just an incredibly restrictive society. So what does Prince Mohammed say he wants to do? And how is that different from the Saudi Arabia you just described? So Mohammed bin Salman comes in and he makes it very clear that he wants to do a complete overhaul of the way that the economy works, of the way that the society functions, and of really the, the kingdom's entire place in the world. Since then, I think the things that have drawn the most notice that have really struck people the most on the ground have been the social changes. One of the first things that he did was take the power to arrest away from the religious police. These were the guys who were on the ground to enforce the very austere version of Islam that I talked about earlier. They would patrol malls, they would patrol public places, parks, and make sure that 
for example, men and women who were not related to each other, were not interacting and socializing. They would police the way that women were dressed to make sure that their bodies were properly covered and their hair was properly covered. And really in one fell swoop, he just says, you guys are done. No more power. You can't mm. do this anymore. Wow. And so that very much paves the way for all of these other things that he wants to do to really open up the society in a way that it had never been before. He brings in movie theaters in all these Saudi cities so that all mm. the Saudis who used to get on airplanes on the weekends and fly to Dubai or wherever else to go see a movie, they could stay home and do it. He creates an entire new branch of the government whose job is to create an entertainment industry. And so they start bringing in musicians and magicians and people to do concerts. They bring in the Harlem Globetrotters. Huh. They bring in pro wrestling. They bring in monster truck rallies. Wow. And it's just this idea that you want Saudis to enjoy being in the kingdom and to stay in the kingdom and spend their money. He finally revokes the ban on women driving, which had been in place for many, many decades. And all of a sudden, women can go out and get driver's licenses and get behind the wheel and take their children to school or go to work. So this is a major, major change. And all of these changes really take Saudi Arabia by surprise. I mean, it was a country that was used to operating a certain way. And it really just strikes a nerve with the younger Saudis. Roughly two thirds of Saudis are under age 30. And most of them are just incredibly excited about this. They're excited to see these changes happening in their country. They're excited to see these new opportunities and just to feel their country is becoming something that they want to be a part of. Okay, so these are pretty big departures from how things had been done in this pretty rigid, insular country. But surely there had to be more than that. I mean, did he face any opposition? So very early on, while Mohammed bin Salman is doing all of these... Really good story. Just good. Um, when Biden met Mohammed bin Salman. So in the past, President Biden has called Saudi Arabia a pariah for its human rights abuses and said he would never meet with its facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But Biden's first trip as president in the Middle East includes talks with the prince. What prompted the change? That's what I was asking myself too. That's just in the description of the episode when Biden met MBS. There's a lot that you can speak about in you know concerning Saudi Arabia. I think the first thing that attracted me to the story was Oh, it's the same old story with the, let's say, the Arab world as far as the leaders and how, you know, those that are at the top stay there by all means, you know, by any means rather. Um, so I was interested for that reason. And obviously the most famous story, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist that was killed, dismembered. It was just a horrific story. And how the West was very big on being like, you know, we're not going to get involved with you guys because of the human rights abuses. And obviously now, because of the way the oil price is so high, and by the way, this is not a a podcast about, you know, the economy, but, you know, with oil being so high, you know, places like Saudi Arabia with oil reserves, you know, are in play again. Obviously, they'd be supplying parts of the world already, but, you know, those sort of, uh, I, I want to say, allyships or alliances, rather, are very important. So there's that. There's also the Saudi-backed LIV, or is it LIV, Golf League, that's, you know, come out. Phil Mickelson getting something like $120 million to play in that league. And part of the clip I just played just tells you about how 
uh, bin Salman, you know, went after, you know, changing Saudi Arabia and the feeling. And, you know, that obviously played against, you know, that whole, you know, these dictators in the Arab world and how they, they govern. He really, you know, started to change, you know, what it felt like to be a person from Saudi Arabia, I guess. And the story sort of goes into that. But obviously the themes come through, you know, just where I stopped this clip they ask about, was there any opposition? And they get into that. Um, but yeah, I think interesting just to, to see the kind of deals that are being made because of where the world is. Don't worry, inflation is not only affecting you, it's also affecting um, leaders out there. So yeah, interesting story. New York Times Daily. Run that one up, bro. You gotta run it up, bro. <laughs> Basquiat is one of the most famous and, and arguably one of the most significant artists to emerge from the downtown New York art scene of the 1980s. Brett Sokol is a contributing writer on art and culture for the New York Times. He's based in Miami, Florida. He's also really the poster child for art stardom. I don't want to call his success overnight, but pretty close to it. He starts really showing his work in some prominent group shows in 1980. And by 1982, his star is really on the rise to the point where people are, are trying to kill each other over getting a hold of his work. And by the end of the 80s, he is a, a bona fide art star. Basquiat, who's credited as the first to bring street art to fine art. And his importance within the art world and also the accompanying prices for his work have only soared in the decades since. Up until May, Basquiat held the record for an American artist at auction. Auction records shattered at Sotheby's Thursday with the $110.5 million sale of this painting by Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, he was only knocked down to number two by Andy Warhol, and they're still sort of jockeying back and forth for the pole positions there. But another painting of Basquiat's did sell this past May for $85 million. Not an amount to scoff at. There is a lot of money at stake in the Basquiat market, and not just for his paintings. There is a mania for anything associated with Basquiat, whether it's a commercial for Tiffany's with Jay-Z in it, with a Basquiat painting behind him, and Jay-Z is, is dressed up to look like uh, a, one of the iconic looks of Basquiat, or whether it's in the form of 29 uh, t-shirts that you can get at The Gap with Basquiat's uh, work on it. There's just a huge clamoring for all things Basquiat, and it keeps growing month to month, year to year. And maybe this kind of explains why someone might want to fake a Basquiat? Yes, there is a lot of money at stake here. And certainly, we're speaking theoretically here, if you were an art forger and you were trying to forge some artwork that you could sell for a lot of money, Basquiat would be a very good candidate for that. And this brings us to Orlando. So set the scene for me. What exactly happened in Florida? So most dramatically, uh, on Friday, June 24th, over a dozen FBI agents from the FBI's art crime team raided the Orlando Museum of Art. They came in through the front door showed a search warrant, and went into the museum's marquee exhibition of paintings by Basquiat, or at least paintings which the museum said were by Basquiat. Is it a Basquiat or Basquinat? 
FBI investigators are looking into whether 25 Jean-Michel Basquiat paintings that were on display at the Orlando Museum of Art and insured at more than $82 million were forged. The FBI agents literally took them down off the walls of the gallery they were hanging in and hauled them away back to presumably a storage warehouse. I think it's worth emphasizing this. An FBI raid of a museum show is not something that happens in art museums every day. It's, it's quite the spectacle. And so it raises the question, how on earth did we get to that point? Yo. Yo. Damn. Yeah, this story is really good. Um, it's about a gallery. So they basically found these paintings that look like Basquiat's, but they ended up being forgeries. The person associated is actually the person who confirmed that like he didn't own it because it was a storage under his name um, or in his name. Um, really great story. I think like, you know, we live in a world where people are constantly trying to emulate, duplicate, <laughs> whatever the word is that you want to use, the feeling. You know, so to to listen to the story about the guy who used to make fake Basquiat's and actually made a career out of it. He said something like 10, 15 years he was making them. Everything from this was a drawing that he gave me. This was what he put on a napkin to actual, you know, pieces. Um, how the people were caught in, in the case of the fake Basquiat's that were found and then exhibited that's an interesting end, so definitely listen to that. Um, again, the theme today is your strategy showing. So, you know, in the way people work, they leave messages, you know. So Basquiat left a way for us to be able to see what was real and what was fake um, just in his process. And that's what I really appreciated about this story, you know, um, authenticity you know, is the reason why people get caught. So, for example, let's say the other day, I think there was a Van Gogh that was found, and the reasoning was Van Gogh would often paint behind other paintings just because of a lack of resource, you know, saving a canvas. So he'd paint behind a canvas. So they found a painting behind another painting as they were restoring or just maintaining, doing maintenance on a painting. Isn't that crazy? So stuff like that, you know, if you find something over the years, you're more likely to believe it existed if it fits into the way the person used to work, their tendencies, how they treated their work, where they would work. I think there's Basquiat fridges because he painted on a fridge that was in his studio. You know, like when artists start to get really good, anything they touch is worth something and they know that too. So there's obviously always sparing with, you know, where they apply their mark. So a great story. The case of the fake Basquiat today explained, run it up. You know, run it up, bro. <laughs> Scott, we're back. There's new details in how Microsoft landed the Netflix deal. The coup is credited to an ad technology called Xander, which Microsoft bought off AT&T last year. The tech allows ad buyers and sellers to transact across different platforms, including connected televisions. This is a big deal. If Microsoft's moved in and out of tech, you're very familiar with this, I know. They bought different companies over the years. 
And this was thought to go to Google or one of the other, there's one other big one I've been blanking on it was, I think it's Magnum or something like that. So this is a big deal that they went with Netflix. Now, Reed Hastings was on Microsoft's board. I don't believe he's still on the board, but uh, it's a, it's a big, it's a big coup for uh, Satya Nadella. Yeah, it is. And something I didn't realize, you know, realize that Microsoft's the fourth largest advertiser in the world. They, they have like mm-hmm. a 3% market share, just be- not just behind, but they're behind Amazon that's at 12%. Most people don't think of Amazon as a media company. It's a huge media company. And then mm-hmm. it's Facebook and then it's Google. And what I think this says is, I mean, there's a couple things. One, when the economy, the last 13 years have been just so much champagne and cocaine and so much capital that everyone has vertically integrated backwards and forwards. So let's not outsource ad sales. Let's build our own mm-hmm. ad sales force team. Let's not put our iPhones in stores. Let's build out our own stores. And when capital is cheap, yeah. you go vertical. Now capital is getting more expensive. And Netflix has made the decision with our stock off 70%. If we're going to try and go into the ad supported business, let's not build our own ad sales yeah, team. Let's for go now. somewhere else. For now. When I interviewed Ted Sarandos, it sounded like oh, they you, were you going to temporary? The, the other thing yeah. it says is, and it's such a 180, mm-hmm. is that in terms of partnerships and your reputation in the community, mm-hmm. I remember I did um, a brand strategy project for a company called AMB that ultimately ended up becoming Prologis. And it's run by one mm-hmm. of the biggest brains in the real estate world, a guy named Hamid Mogadam. Mm-hmm. And his brand, when I was interviewing him about what their strategy was, our strategy is to be known in the marketplace as being a, a fantastic partner. Mm-hmm. And that the real estate business is so many cowboys and so much full body contact negotiation that we want to be mm-hmm. seen as a great partner that wants to make money, yeah. but also wants our partners to make money. And I thought that's such a unique visionary positioning. And this is what's happening in the tech community. And that is of all partners, the Darth Vader of the 90s is now perceived as a better partner. People, people don't... You, Oh my gosh, Amazon has been the greatest partner, said almost no one ever. Oh my God, I love working with Facebook. They told me yeah. they've been honest, they've been transparent, yeah. said no one ever. Yeah. Uh, and Google, who puts, uh, you know, uh, Google, which is kind of nicer, but still mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they overnight, would have been they can, the driver's they can do seat. It. They can do an algorithm change and you're shit out of luck. Mm -hmm. But Microsoft is genuinely seen in the business community as being a thoughtful, good partner, emphasis on the word partner. And that's why I think they went with them. Yeah, they've been buying, moving in and out of ad tech during the bomber years. What was that one they bought? They bought a couple of big companies and they sort of went sideways on quite a few of them. Apple has done the same thing, like had moved a little bit into advertising and moved out. Um, what's interesting uh, is the ones that lost out, specifically Google here, which is which means that Microsoft has come to play. And, you know, if other companies follow Netscape and Netflix's lead uh, and bringing in Peloton, Stitch Fix, Substack, any of them, Microsoft is now an option and ways, you know, a good partner, like you said. It's not their core business, but they it's good for their business and it's related to their business. Um, and they buying this company, which was a lot less than their previous ad buys, uh, is, I think, very important to them. And it shows their resurgent interest in ad tech, which sort of waned after their last thing didn't go as well. Hmm. hmm. So, yeah, we'll see. I think it's a bad we'll move. See. Going back to Netflix, I personally think it's a bad move. You like it. I like it. Court, hey, I look, um, I'm glad I stopped it right there. Look. What do I think about this story? They were always going to get to ads. I just thought when, you know, I thought, wow, the revolution of all this new content and having no ads will be spared of adverts. And there goes the entire advertising industry. Uh, No. So advertising people out there, stay woke, 
stay creative. They're going to need you at different companies. I don't think ads are going anywhere because who brings you the biggest adverts or promotions, the biggest brands in the world? And they're the people with all the money, so they make all the fun, basically. Even the biggest movies on earth, like let's use James Bond and Heineken, Suits and Lexus. Um, I could go on all day. There's there's brand partnerships we don't even see, you know, that exist. Um, Space Jam and Nike. That must have been a huge advert for Nike. Um, again, figuring out new ways, new media. But again, the advertising will always be there. I think let's see what this new generation of creators bring into the space or even some of the old creators. I really love listening to this. I think people don't mind ads as much as we all like to think. I think we've been sensitized into them and we know where to put them. I don't think they're, they're something that gets in the way of our thoughts or even I'd say our decisions. I think they sort of influence our decisions. They're like a reminder these days more than like you will act. You know, it's not the days of like, I don't know, when there wasn't a lot of media, now you just have a smarter consumer. I, I, I'll say, so we have to figure out smarter ways to communicate to them. But yeah, Netflix and ads, that's wild, man. That that opens up a whole new gate for other... Netflix is not the only streaming giant. Hulu, NBC, Disney+, Plus, and, and, you know, products that obviously will be big in the world. Imagine Crocs being um, advertised on Netflix. I think that's so... It just works. It fits. I'm sitting at home in my Crocs. Um, the kind of uh, brand partnerships they do. I think you know, in the in the past, if you're in advertising, you remember the years when Facebook started like doing all their like advertising training. They'd come to your agency. So I assume Netflix and them are going to be doing the same. Interesting. The middlemen are back. I think the the agencies that survive will continue in legacy. The Ogilvy's will always survive. I think all the ones backed by big groups, WPP, etc. But yeah, interesting story. Great way to end off the weekly. Your strategy is showing. Um, and I guess there's Netflix's strategy.